just want to greet you all in Jesus' name this morning. It's a uh, rainy day, and I'm not going to try to give the illusion that I think it's, this is a beautiful day. I'm <clears throat> the kind of guy that likes sunny days, but uh, I do appreciate these days. I think for nothing more, well, of course we need the rain, but also it really makes me enjoy the sunshine a lot more when it pipes through those that fog, you know, about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock after one of these rainy stretches. So I'm looking forward to the sunshine, but I'm going to enjoy the rain too. I know we also have kind of a rainy spell here with our, with our sickness that's been mentioned. And, uh, but I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad we're worshiping. We need the word. Um, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So this morning, um, we'll continue the psalm teaching thing. I guess the, I hadn't realized it, but uh, the passage out of Isaiah is one of the servant psalms. So this will be kind of a continuation. Uh, the psalm we'll be looking at is Psalm 15. And the message title is, Who Shall Dwell on Your Holy Hill? Who Shall Dwell on Your Holy Hill? Um, like to read this. Maybe if we could stand to read this together. Let's all stand. Psalm 15, verse 1, a psalm of David, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy hill? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. You may be seated. Short sum and to the point, isn't it? Um, so we don't know for sure, but it appears like the background to this sum, to this question here, could go back to 1 Samuel 4.1, and I'd like to explore that a little bit uh, together. For one thing, it's very interesting. The other is... is um, there's lessons to be learned there. So let's go back to 1 Samuel 4.1. And in this setting here, um, Samuel's word came to Israel. Um, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Uh, that's in 1 Samuel 4.1. They camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed out of the Israelites 4,000 of their men, their soldiers. I don't know how many Philistines were killed. It doesn't say. But anyways, soldiers came back to camp and the elders and the Israelites asked themselves, they did some introspection, 
Why did this happen? And I find it interesting that he asks specifically, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So the question goes there, why did this happen? Now we go to action. So let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Let's take that out and have the Lord save us. They blamed the defeat on the Lord. That was the reason. It was the Lord's fault. Why didn't he do this? You know, they could have assumed a lot of things. They could have assumed that they had it prepared properly before going to battle. Maybe they, they could have assumed they hadn't been crafty enough. They could have been craftier. Or maybe they could have just assumed that the Philistines were more superior warriors than they were. But they didn't. They seem to recognize that this defeat is from the Lord. So the response again, let's grab the ark. Let's take it out in the field with us. And I think the thought is there, you know, if we do that, God's surely going to have to honor himself in the middle of us out there in the field. Surely he will do that. Now remember, Israel had backslidden um, in this setting. They had been serving other gods. They'd been going their own way. So I, I think that to them, in their view at that point, God was in a box in this ark. You know, they could grab God. They could take him out into the field just like they could take another idol out into the field. And uh, God would deliver them. He had become their ultimate idol. Maybe their nuclear, you know, uh, response. Um, the idol they could turn to when their other permissive and, and Hellenistic um, idols wouldn't work. It seems like their way of thinking was like this. If you want to engage in promiscuity, if you want to engage in child killing or permissive lifestyle, you worship Baal or Astra. We heard about them in Leon's sermon last week or the week before. But if you need deliverance from your ungodly, idol-worshiping, cruel enemies, you turn to the God of Israel, the true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac. I don't know for sure. I didn't research this as well as I, I wish I would have. But I, don't, I think this is the only case that I know that they took an ark out into the field, battlefield. Uh, and I don't think that, the, uh, and I feel certain that this was uh, forbidden. Uh, it was supposed to stay with uh, in the Holy of Holies. So this, this case here is clearly them taking their God in a box in their minds and going nuclear. He fit the situation and they were going to beat the, the Philistines this way. You know, the truth is, is we serve God or gods, God or gods don't serve us. And the greater truth is, is that God will always, every time he'll honor his own name and his own power. So that if we keep on going in 1 Samuel 4, verse 4, they sent Eli and Hophni, the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, I'm sorry, back to get the ark. 
And uh, they came back out with this, and it says there was a great shout. The Hebrews recognized, here comes the ark. There was a great shout. Even the Philistines heard it and trembled, it says. But the Philistines' response was, Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews. Quit yourselves and fight. And it says they fought, and Israel was smitten. 30,000 men, footmen, fell that day, were killed. The ark of God was taken. Hophni and Phinehas were slain there in the battlefield. And Eli, of course, he fell over backwards when he heard the news and broke his neck and died. Terrible tragedy. So the question is, is were the Philistines too strong for God's power? I'm sure that they were thinking that's the case at this point. Man, we've got it. You know, they sent their God out here and we've got him. The more important question is, is will God allow himself to be boxed in? Of course, never. What went wrong? Why were the Israelites defeated? So then we have this, the Philistines having to deal with God. That's, I was going to have a little Sunday, uh, a little class with the children about that. But you know, the Philistines had to deal with God now. And that wasn't that great of an experience for him. I don't have all the notes on this, but we know that they, they went into, Philistines took him back. Uh, they put him in their temple with their god, Dagon. First night, Dagon fell over. The next, so they set him back up. The next night, Dagon fell over and his limbs were broken off. All his limbs broken off. Then this thing, you know, this art, this this God thing of Israel started really getting heavy on him. And we have the you know the boils start coming on. And um, theologians or scholars feel like these boils came from the bubonic plague from like rats. And so and you remember if they when they sent back the ark later on, they went back with golden mice and, and also the, the 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 boils type of thing in gold. Anyways. Um, they sent this, this ark from village to village. Every place it landed, it was just a lot of pain, a lot of casualty for the Philistine. Finally, the, the last village that it came to, they said, no way, you know, don't do it. You're just sending it here to kill us. And the Philistines were lost to know what to do, so they finally went to their holy people, their priest, and said, what should we do? And they told them, send it back to Israel. Don't harden yourselves, they said, like the, the Egyptians did. And get us all killed. Don't do that to us. Send it back to Israel. Don't send it back empty-handed. Send it back with gifts. And don't just send it back in any old way. Send it back on a new cart. And send it back with two heifers that have just, you know, that have suckling calves. We know that a young cow or a cow with a sucking calf is not just going to walk off from it. Said, so send it back, tied to this cart with you know with two cows that have calves. Keep the calves penned up, and and, touch, and let it go. Let those cows carry that cart back with the ark on the back. And that's what they did, and we we know what happened. That cart, those cows with that cart on the back, plodded all the way over to uh, the Israelite village of uh, Beth something. 
Beth Shemesh, and um, went all the way over there, lowing as they went, it said. They had a purpose. They were going to get there. You know, it was a real, it was a real um, testimony to those Philistines, and I'm sure to all the people of Israel there that, you know, God is much greater than the Israelites. He's much greater than the Philistines. And His will will be accomplished. Um, so now we have, we're, we're here to 1 Samuel 6.20. And this is the, the key verse. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, now this was after it came into their village. They were uh, surprised and, and joyful to see it come in. And they took some liberties there that they shouldn't have taken. They opened the ark up to see into it. And it said 70 men were killed there. So the death toll went up more. Anyways, their response was after that happened in verse 19. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And then in verse 1 of chapter 7, So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of the Lord. And there it stayed for a long time, um, for 20 years. Then Samuel, I think he was cultivating the heart of the people here, hearts of the people. And he says to the people, he says, if you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will. He might, could be, no. He said, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did, away, did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. They gathered together, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And the Philistines heard something good is going on. They heard about this gathering. Um, and I'm sure they were like, hey, we better get on top of this. Israelites are back at it again. And so they started rounding up their forces and coming back down. And look at Israel's response here now. So the Philistines are coming back at him again. The children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us. They were afraid of the Philistines. It says in verse 7, cease, don't, don't stop crying to our God for us, that he'll save us out of the hand of these Philistines. Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel. And the Lord heard him. And, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the, Phil, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines. And he discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. And then the men of Israel followed up and chased the Philistines away. In verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. 
So the Philistines were subdued and came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So here, that's some background setting. I don't know exactly what David was thinking of when he wrote this psalm. What is what is people there, the priests, um, and so forth. But he kind of easily went, very likely went back to that setting. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy hill? Similar tones to that verse. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Out of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 6.20. Security and a place to call home. That's what the Israelites wanted. They wanted security. They wanted a place to call home. Who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Likely referring to the tabernacle, this tent that moved with the Israelites on the journey in Exodus. Tones of that. But also just the, the security. You know, who, who can live in your sacred tent? Maybe for us it's the question, who may securely abide in your presence, Lord? Who may be close to you? Very close to you. What does it take to develop a relationship with you, Lord? So here are the positive qualifications. A blameless walk. And I like to think of this in terms of New Testament here. Matthew 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pureness in our desire for only God. A blameless walk. Purity, it ties together in my mind. Ridding ourselves of, of false gods like Baals and Ashtoreths. Your God is a jealous God. He is jealous and He won't share His glory with another. Neither will He live with a dual loyalty from us. He requires our all. It's really a false loyalty when we give a dual loyalty to God. Righteous living. My mind goes again, went again to the Beatitudes. Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if there's ever a place of security, it's the kingdom of heaven, right? If there's ever a place where we can be close to God on His holy hill, it's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the, pure, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A sense of being that finds its fulfillment in the virtues of God rather than the natural or carnal methods of seeking fulfillment. A poorness in spirit of looking to God instead of a looking to ourselves or looking to the carnal. A looking, a realization that really it's only God that can fill our needs. It's only God that can take care of, of um, the issues that we face, we deal with poor in ourselves, abundant in our desire to, to, for God and His kingdom. Then it's a truthful person. 
In Matthew 12, verse 34, Jesus says this, So generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of your heart, or of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. So it's like there's this bank account that, you know, starts building up. And out of that treasure on the inside of us, what we take in starts building up. And out of that treasure, the mouth begins to speak, Jesus is saying. He goes on to say, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So, who's going to stand on the holy hill? The person that is blameless, whose walk is blameless. The person who does what is righteous. And the one who speaks truth from his heart. I believe that truthfulness in, in every level is imperative. Is an imperative for us, no matter where we're at. I was uh, talking with a young man here just recently, and he was telling me how that, or he was explaining to me his journey through opioid addiction when he was, when he was much younger, and then moving forward, and how that, and he's gotten help. He's, um, he's um, praise the Lord, uh, been free of opioids for quite a while. But the thing that he stressed to me was so important for him to learn was to be truthful. And to identify that opioids were definitely a disease or a battle or a, an addiction he was facing. And also to be truthful with his counselors and let them know when he was using it, even if he shouldn't be. And um, he said he learned that even omission is not being truthful. You know, that's, I think, such an important concept for all of us to learn. Seeing ourselves in a truthful sense before God. Undone creatures, need of a Savior. And until we get to that point, and even after we have a Savior, we have so much. We have so much baggage yet, I think, to work with, all of us. And we just need to really be truthful with God about that and with our fellow men. In my youth, in a course that I, that I was singing in, our church course, I remember our chorister urging us to sing loudly enough so that we could be heard. This was in practice, okay? And uh, he said, you know, even if you're not sure of yourself, sing loud enough that you can be heard. His reason was, is that how will, other, how will I, he said, be able to help you find your part or know if you're singing wrong if I can't hear you? And I think there's a lot of truth in that when it comes to our relationship with God and our brotherhood as well. Truth from the heart, shared in love and humility is, is fundamental to Christian growth at every level. And then moving forward, real truth will come out of the, out of the treasure of the godly man's heart. Real truth as a, as a man of God, as a woman of God, absorbs the word as he or she is faithful in front of God to be truthful, 
to let the Word illuminate the dark areas and purge and cleanse. You know, truth will just start flowing out of that person. It will just uh, be like it says in, uh, like John says, as rivers of, of water, you know, coming out, flowing out, life-giving, truth will, will come out of that person. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So it's only a close relationship with God, I believe. There's only through a close relationship with God that these three qualifications, blameless, righteous, and truthful, can be considered part of our DNA. You know, it's our makeup. And there were men in the Old Testament that had this relationship. A number, actually. Moses, Job, Joshua, David, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, Abraham are just some of those that come to mind. Isaiah. There are multitudes more there and that we don't know about, I'm sure. All men that were looking forward to the Messiah. Today, as New Testament believers, we see things much more clearly. We can look back at that finished work at Calvary. Just like it appears like Isaiah was able to look forward to the finished work of Calvary. You know, it was definitive. It was already done. I don't know. That's a bit of theology there that's, that uh, I find interesting to think about. But no matter where we're at in the timeline of history or any other line, little sinner or big sinner, it's only our commitment to the truth of Christ that will enable us to be blameless, righteous, and truthful. It's, it's only our commitment to that in Christ's infilling presence, giving us power. <clears throat> so then we have these negative qualifiers or disqualifiers. What you can't be and be in the house of God and have that security His tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others. Colossians 3.9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Lie not one to another. James 3, 5 says, <clears throat> Even so the tongue is a little member, and it boasteth great things. Just a little member of our body. But it boasts <clears throat> great things. And in verse 8 it says, The tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Out of it we bless God and we curse men. Uh, and he says, my brethren, these things ought not to be. They shouldn't be that way. You know, self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion, self-love, they're all very much a part of our natural DNA. It's very much a part of us, and we can't really get away from that. We can 
overcome that through the blood of Christ, through a relationship with God. But the ultimate salvation is again when we die, when we go to be with the Lord. Up until that point, um, we are going to be facing this edemic DNA that comes parcel and package with us. This thing of wanting to preserve self, to make self look big, to promote self and so forth. And it's usually in our efforts to take care of self that we're prone to start cutting down others or casting others into a shadow. You know, we want to lift self and somehow we need to shadow someone else or cast someone else down. You know, we're much too cultured to do like a, wow, am I casting someone else down? Let me think about this. Anyways, there was a man that I knew uh, that would bounce him, would sing very loudly, then hit himself on the chest and tell us, you know, look how good I can sing. Okay, we know we're much too cultured to do that. We're to pump ourselves in the chest and say, you know, look how great I can sing. You know, we're much too sophisticated to go down that road. Rather, we'd carefully plant seeds of concern or doubt or give the cold shoulder or a host of other things to discount you know, the other brother or sister we have an issue with. And there are definitely valid concerns. There are issues that need to be addressed, to be sure. But the point is, is that if we do this, this out of a... Out of a um, motive to elevate self, it's going to be very wrong. And uh, it's, that in itself is selfish and therefore sinful. Um, so, who can't be a part of the house of the Lord? A person whose tongue utters slander, who does wrong to his neighbor, who cast a slur on others. That's phrasing it a bit differently, but those are things that can't be a part of the house of the Lord. And then in verse 4, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind despising the vile person. In the New Covenant, Christ teaches us to love our enemy, to bless those that curse us. But there's an eternal point here that goes through the New Testament, and that is we are to hate evil. We are to hate the vile. We don't engage with it. We don't accommodate it. We don't play around with it. We aren't humored by it. It doesn't catch our eye. Um, it's repulsive to us. We don't like it. We know it's only hurtful and harmful. So we despise it. But honors those who fear the Lord. You know, maybe Samuel said these things to the Israelites when they put away Baal and Ashtoreth. Maybe he told them, look, it's time to put those away. You don't look at them. You burn them. You destroy them. <coughs> you don't engage with it again. You don't accommodate that lifestyle again. Maybe, maybe I think probably he told them all of that. 
And we have our own bales and ashtrays to face today, don't we? Things that will catch our eye. Things that will call for a response from us that we are called to despise. Honors those who fear the Lord. I believe our respect naturally should go to those who by virtue of their godly character and obedient manner of life exemplify Christ and His Word. You know, man, and I will throw this out, man, even the godliest of men will at times disappoint. And we should still honor them. I think it's important for us to have men that we look up to. Men that we, or women, that we look up to. Uh, godly men and women. That we model our lives by. I think it's also important that we recognize that they will at times disappoint. They are human. And, um, you know, our call is to, to become more godly. <clears throat> but we honor those people, those who fear the Lord, who fear His Word, who model their lives after the Word. Keeps an oath even when it hurts. Well, Jesus in the New Testament and Matthew 5.33 calls us away from taking oaths. He says, just, just let your yes be yes and your no, no, okay? Just stop there. So your yes is yes and your no is no. He says, beyond that, just, just comes of evil. Um, in Romania, we had a lot of contact with a... With, uh, a with gypsies. And um, it is known that they, uh, they, they have this, what they call the Schmeckett streak. It's a very crafty or cunning or deceitful streak. And it's known across the country. It's, it's, it's a sad fact. But within their group, it's a skill to be admired. And um, if you want to, if you're there and you're dealing with a, a gypsy, if you want to bring a light to his eyes when you're negotiating something, just tell him you're being very schmeckett and he'll just light up. You know, that's, that's a compliment or an indirect compliment. Um, one afternoon I was, came in to our courtyard and there was a, a, a gypsy cigladia there, um, craftsman that did uh, steel work or like did soldering and so forth and he was he was there in the courtyard waiting waiting for the head man to come in and uh, pointed out to me there were numerous places on our gutters that needed to be repaired and I agreed yes that's the truth you know they had been bothering me actually because we had a lot of rain coming into our courtyard and places where it shouldn't be because our gutters were in disrepair and so we established a price for him to, to take care of these. He seemed to know what he was doing, so he started a little fire there in the middle of the courtyard and uh, started taking down gutters and soldering them. He'd light up, the, he had his solder uh, material there. 
heating, and then he'd bring the other part over, and he'd solder back together pieces and so forth. It was very fascinating. We had quite a crowd there around, you know, watching him. He was working all day long, though, on this. Uh, now, I thought I had negotiated a, a price with him. I thought it was a reasonable price for, for what he was doing. And uh, he worked all, the, all day there, did a nice job. An evening came, well, uh, let me back up just a little bit. He was just at his work for, you know, about an hour, and I saw he was doing a good job. And one of the um, sister uh, employees, one of our sisters from our church there, and our, an employee too, Romanian, came to me and she said, Gerald, what, what's this, why do you have this guy do this work? And I said, well, he's, you know, repairing the gutters. But why did you have a, a gypsy come do the work inside our courtyard? And I was like, well, we needed it done. But, but don't you know, this is not going to uh, turn out well. She was distressed about this. And uh, I was feeling a little bit hurt by this time. I was like, well, you know, I'm trying to take care of things around here and so forth. And anyways, I understood a little later. We got to the end of the job, and all of a sudden, for some reason, his price was three times the amount. I mean, it went up threefold. We had maybe added, you know, two pieces to, uh, to six. So it was, not, it was just an exponential jump, way out of, out of bounds. And I was like, no way, you know. And, and uh, he was like, yeah, this is, gonna, it, this is the price. This is, you know, you've got to pay me. And so we were going back and forth, and it got a little heated, and here, here Nicolina shows up on the scene again and she started intervening and what's going on and she said, Gerald, I told you. And uh, anyways, she was back and forth and finally she turned to me and she said, Gerald, you're just going to have to pay him. If you don't, he's going to take you, he's going to get the police involved. And he said, this has happened before here in the village and the police are at the point that they'd rather just teach people not to use these craftsmen and try to teach these craftsmen to be honest. It's just too difficult. You're just going to have to pay him and let him go. So that's what I did. And, uh, but anyways, you know, it goes back to that. That's, that's kind of an extreme example of not keeping your oath right, not keeping your commitment right. Um, but, you know, are we always as clear as we should be about keeping our commitments? making sure that we understand each other, making sure that we, our yeses are yes, our noes are no, and that, you know, at the end of the job, we, we come out, at the end of whatever we're involved with, we come out in a good place. Um, it's certainly something that, that we want to do, we want to be sure of, or else um, we'll find ourselves in a hurtful situation. <clears throat> being truthful with others, being righteous, being blameless, um, and letting our yeses, making our yeses yeses and our noes noes. Who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Don't prey on the needy. Don't lie against your neighbor for gain. And Jesus goes on to establish the teaching. These things, these things may seem far-fetched, but do they come closer to home than what we realize? He goes on to, Jesus goes on to establish this teaching of not giving for earthly reward in Matthew 6. 
Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. So these hypocrites would go into the temple and the offering box was there on the right. And they would have trumpeteers to say, you know, to blow the trumpets when they got ready to drop their coins in. And, you know, that seems very far-fetched. Uh, but that's what was happening. And, Jesus, and uh, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give, and don't lie for any kind of gain, monetary or personal stature. Give quietly and without fanfare. And I think this could be about putting your offering into the offering basket but it could be about so many other things too that would have the possibility of giving us a little bit of personal um, boost, you know. Um, did you see what I did there, you know? Um, well, we, we finished that late last night. Um, you know, these sorts of things that, that just kind of feel good to kind of slip out. I know about those things, and I'm sure you do too. We all face that. Um, Jesus says, give quietly. Do it in secret. Do it for your Father. And your Father will reward you. So much there for, for me to learn, for us to learn, I believe. You'll never be shaken is the Old Testament promise. The New Testament promise is your Father who, see, who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you openly. Oh, it doesn't say openly, does it? it say he will reward you. It says, so he'll figure out how to reward you. And then there's the power, and I alluded to this earlier: the rivers of living water. Jesus getting up on the last day of the great festival. There says in a loud voice, "Let anyone who is thirsty come to me." And I think that could easily be, "Let anyone that wants to live." with me in the tent. Let everyone that wants to have that relationship, that special relationship with me, who wants to dwell in my presence, let him, that thirsty person, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost beings, out of his belly, will, will flow rivers of living water. And by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Again, the possibility to live blamelessly, righteously and truthfully, and not to live in that negative sense, can only be experienced when we are, our lives are fully, fully yielded to and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And this, this, I believe, is the requirement to live in God's tent, to be part of his household. I was thinking this morning as Brother Delvin was sharing with us out of Isaiah, saying what Jesus had done for us, how great the sacrifice was, um, so that we can have, so that by his stripes we can be healed. Uh, I just had to think of, you know, with that cost, uh, certainly comes a, a responsibility 
a reciprocating action is is called for uh, for uh, from us on our part, right? And it's worthwhile. It keeps us from sin. It keeps us from the damage. It's not that God just wanted to save us from sin and forgive us. He wanted us to actually save us from living in sin, from being partakers in sin and all that goes with that. He wanted us to be partakers of His righteousness, of His kingdom. To be blameless, righteous, and truthful. God bless you as you serve Him.